Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 347 with Drew Dudley. I think you'll love this conversation with Drew because he is unpacking what does it mean for real to be a leader, to live values. These terms can be kind of fluffy, kind of ambiguous, thrown around a lot, and he makes it really, really, really real in the sense of where the rubber meets the road and what to do to generate this cool inspirational leadership stuff. So you'll learn, one, the gross way we make decisions when we don't have clear values, two, how to make leadership a practice instead of a hobby, and three, approaches to discovering your deep wisdom with an edge-of-the-bed advice technique. So if you'd like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find it at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F347. Now, here is Drew's story. Drew Dudley is the founder and chief catalyst of Day One Leadership. He's spent 15 years helping individuals and organizations increase their leadership capacity. He's been recognized as one of the most dynamic keynote speakers in the world, and he has spoken to over a quarter million people across five continents, been featured in the Huffington Post, Radio America, Forbes.com, TED.com, where his TED Talk has been voted one of the 15 most inspirational TED Talks of all time. Time Business Insider and Inc. magazines have all included this talk in their list of speeches that will make you a better leader. Drew's clients have included some of the world's most dynamic companies and organizations, including McDonald's, Procter Gamble, J.P. Morgan Chase, Hyatt Hotels, the United Way, and 75 colleges and universities. Thanks to Drew for sharing some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. It's a trying time that challenges all of our basic assumptions. However, one thing that brings us all together is our common humanity. Now more than ever, teams must come together and work together to solve big challenges. And Trello is here to help. Trello, part of Atlassian's collaborative suite, is an app with an easy-to-understand visual format plus tons of features that make working with your team functional and just plain fun. Teams of all shapes and sizes and companies like Google, Fender, and even Costco all use Trello to collaborate and get work done. With Trello, you can work with your team wherever you are, whether it's at home or in an office. No matter what device you're using, computer, tablet, or phone, Trello syncs across all of them, so you can stay up to date on all the things your team cares about. Keep your workflow going from wherever you are with Trello. Try Trello for free and learn more at Trello.com. That's T-R-E-L-L-O.com. Trello.com. Now, here's Drew. Drew, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Oh, I'm thrilled. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, thank you. I think we're going to have a, a ton of fun here. And one fun thing I want to know about you right away is all about your stuffed penguin collection. <laughs> the stuffed penguin collection. You know, the stuffed penguin collection emerged, believe it or not, because I'm afraid of dogs. I was dating a girl, and almost every silly story starts with that. I was dating a girl who really wanted a dog, and I was attacked when I was a kid by a big Siberian Husky. And while I've gotten better with dogs, back then I was more, like if there was one the size of a hot dog, I'd cross the street to avoid it. So this was a bit of a non-starter for me. And we were out one night on a date and we saw March of the Penguins. And she leaned over to me and said, if you buy me a penguin, I will never bother you for a dog again. (laughs) And I thought, done, this is a way out. And believe it or not, you're not, you cannot purchase penguins as pets anywhere. And I, <laughs> I tried, I tried. I said, look, I'll just poke holes in the front of my freezer. We're good to go. And I was in Walmart lamenting the fact that I was going to have to go back to battling against this impending Great Dane that she wanted. And sure enough, I saw a giant stuffed penguin sitting in a box. And I thought to myself, she did not specify the penguin had to be a live one. And I brought it home. And Every now and then, as a boyfriend, you knock one out of the park, and she loved this penguin. And unfortunately, what happened is, I don't know if anyone out there has pets, but sometimes your pet becomes the communication tool between you and your partner. <laughs> like, tell daddy staying too far, too long at work. Well, tell mom that if I don't stay at work, we don't get to, etc. Well, one of my friends witnessed this exchange. And in order to mock me for the fact that apparently I was whipped by a stuffed penguin, he began giving me penguin gifts and got all my friends on board. And what I realized is that you can do one of two things when your friends are picking on you. You can either 
fight back, which just makes it all the more rewarding, or you can <laughs> lean into it. And sure enough, I leaned into it and it became my thing. I've got 50 or 60 stuffed penguins and penguin cufflinks. And because what happens is once you make a deal of it, every gift you get from every client, from every friend, anybody who sees a penguin related thing in a store, that's it. So my penguin collection was my way of avoiding having to get a dog. I was trying to find a loophole and it turned into a monster. That is wild. And I would imagine if, if everybody just gives you penguins because that's what they know about you. You've probably got some duplicate penguins over the course of your collection years. Is this true? Just a few, actually. Somehow they got to be the big thing about three years ago, and everybody had a penguin in the, the front hall. So yeah, I've got... But what's cool is that people will make little shirts for them. So I got one from the University of Notre Dame, and I've got another one from the Sanitation Workers of New Jersey uh, t-shirt. So, you know, that we, we break them up a little bit. I got... Uh, I think they've got a little uh, football league going on. <laughs> well, I'm just curious, like if you move, I mean, you're, you're going to take all of them with you and where do you store them? And uh, <laughs> I mean, this is quite a commitment that you have, well, take it on your shoulders here. I'm not going to lie that there's about, uh, there's about 48 of them that are just stuck in a storage unit somewhere. So uh, I move around <laughs> a lot because I, I figure I can. So why not experience the world? And ultimately, after I moved out of my, my sort of place that I'd been in for a few years, we, we just packed them away because now I live, I've got a bunch of 500 square foot little places scattered about North America where I base out of. Yeah, well, I, I'm just imagining the episode of, is it Storage Wars or whatever that reality TV program is where they claim abandoned uh, storage lockers. <laughs> exactly. Like, what the heck is this? <laughs> I, I actually am storing a bunch of them in the actual storage facility where they shoot that show. No kidding. So, yeah, I kid you not. If, if somehow I disappear in the Bermuda Triangle, damn it, somebody's going to open it up and find a whole bunch of stuffed penguins. And all the workout materials that I've stuck in my storage. You know, <laughs> a little, like, those ab roller, <laughs> a little ab roller that everybody buys. Hey, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's what they'll find. Oh, that's fun. Well, now I want to hear a little bit about your your other role, other than Penguin Custodian. You are, you've got the title. I, I like it. Uh, you're having fun with the title. I do the same. You're the founder and chief catalyst of Day One Leadership. Uh, what does that mean exactly? I guess my job ultimately is to be accountable for how well the company makes three things happen. One, help people figure out the specific leadership behaviors that are right for them, to feel like leaders and act like leaders. Two, to help people make those behaviors a non-negotiable part of every single day of their lives. And then three, convince people that doing those two first things makes them a leader. And my title, when it comes to the company, makes it sound like I'm in charge, I think. But effectively, all it means is that I'm ultimately accountable for the company's success in making those three things possible for as many people as possible. And I started to realize this when it comes to titles. The day-to-day -day operations, the strategy, marketing, sales, everything that a company or organization does, those are all just logistics in service of, in our case, those three things. Whatever your job is, it's not the tasks that you have to do. It's how those tasks relate to the bigger mission of the organization. And here's the thing. If you don't know what the bigger mission of the organization is or you hate it, quit because you're in the wrong place. And, and that's it, right? That's my role is to make those three things happen. Make, help people figure out what the best leadership behaviors for those are, make them a non-negotiable part of their life, and then convince them that doing that is, in fact, leadership. Okay, well, you're clear on what you're about, which is cool. So let's dig into you know some of, of these dimensions one by one. You sort of capture a number of these ideas in your book, uh, This Is Day One. Uh, what would you say is sort of the main idea or thesis behind this one? The key thing I'm trying to get, and this is everything that I do in terms of my speaking and the book, here's the main idea. There's a form of leadership to which we all can and should aspire. And it's defined by a commitment to acting on your core leadership values every single day. Because when you do that, you close the gap between the person you want to be and how you're actually behaving. And my argument is that actively and consciously working to close that gap is what defines a leader. Nothing else. Whether or not you are trying to close the gap between the person you want to be and how you are actually behaving on a day-to-day -day basis. Because I don't know 
the secret to happiness. But I have found that the secret to unhappiness is when a gap forms between who you want to be and how you're acting, and you become aware of that gap. And for Mm -hmm. me, it happened because a seven-year-old called me out on it. About 10 years ago, I had this horrible time at work, like a real toxic environment. So I decided I wanted to take a train ride all the way across Canada and not talk to anybody. Just stick my nose in a, in a bunch of books, all those books you're supposed to have read, and just not talk to anybody. And I, and I started out in this empty car at the back of the train and was super happy with my nose in this book. And this little girl was running up and down this train, back and forth, back and forth. And then she plopped down next to me and said, you know, what are you reading? And I said, uh, it's just a book for work. And I remember she looked at me and said, you get to read books for work? My dad has to go to an office. <laughs> Which is all those cool moments that remind you of how, how awesome your job is. And, and I said, yeah, yeah, I get to read books for work. And she said, well, well what's the story? And I said, uh, well, this book doesn't really have a story because it was some academic research thing, right? And she said, well, don't all books have stories? And I said, no, nah, some just have knowledge. And she says, well, aren't stories knowledge? And I was really thrown off by that because the last thing I want to do is let this is send this kid away thinking that stories aren't knowledge, right? So I said, actually, a really smart friend of mine said once that the story is the basic unit of human understanding. And as soon as it came out of my mouth, all I could think was, dude, she is seven. <laughs> But this girl was amazing. Like She just looks at me and says, I think your friend is very, very smart. <laughs> and so I said, you know, wow, like this girl is incredible. And so I said, well, why are you running up and down the train? And she says, oh, well, my, my parents say I have this very big spirit. And they say my spirit is way too big for every room that I'm in. And I've trained just a big, long hallway, right? And so anytime I'm in a place where it's not big enough for my spirit and no hallway is big enough for my spirit. If rooms aren't, I run to remind myself that I'm free anytime I want to be. And I said to her, cause there was something, she didn't do it to be pretentious. She didn't do it to try to sound impressive. And when you work at a university, like I did, all anyone is trying to do is sound pretentious and impressive. And it was just the way she said it. I'm always free if I want to be. And she said, uh, I said, you know what? I, I think I'm like that too. I, I think the problem is I'm not spending time in places where it's big enough for my spirit. And she hops down off this chair and looks at me and says, Drew, I don't mean to be rude, but I don't think anyone whose spirit is too big for a hallway would ever read a book without a good story and then disappears. And it was <laughs> weird because in that, I, I had always seen myself as someone who gathered stories, who gathered insights, who shared them with other people. Like this is a fundamental part of who I am. And this seven-year-old pointed out that I had gotten on a train, gotten a single sleeper car, hadn't wanted to talk to a single person. There was a gap between who I wanted to be and how I conceived of myself and how I was actually behaving. And it changed so much about how I treated that trip and made me so much more aware of where real leadership lies and the really big struggle in our lives is becoming aware of where that gap is between who we want to be and how we're behaving and doing something about it. And in the book, I know that was a long answer to that question, but it's really about how I try to address things in the book is here are the stories of these extraordinary leaders that I picked up along the way. And they don't all look like we've been taught leaders look like there's a seven year old and there's a cab driver. And each one of them has sort of given me a little bit of an insight. And the idea of this is day one is based on this. We all wake up every single morning. And we have done absolutely nothing to deserve the title of leader that day. Nothing. Whether we're a CEO or we're the person who just got hired an entry-level job. When you wake up in the morning, you have done nothing to deserve the title. Ultimately, that came from one of the first times I ever went to a meeting about my alcohol addiction. And a guy said, you know, he was talking afterwards, he said, I got 36 years in. And a guy next to me who was also at his first meeting said, wow, 36 years. And... The older guy looks at him and says, son, I have just as much time in today as you do. Mm -hmm. And there was something that really resonated with me at that. Like when it comes to leadership, we all get up at the exact same place. And, and, you know, that a lot of day one comes from that experience, recovering from addiction, is that if you don't want to have a drink for the rest of your life, choose not to have a drink today. And then treat every day as if it's the first day of your recovery. Because every day one has an inherent commitment, humility, forgiveness. 
So if you screw up, you just recommit. You don't throw away everything you had before. And if you've got 25 years in of being uh, sober or, you know what, rising up through the ranks and running an organization, yeah, you've done all that stuff to get here. But when you wake up in the morning, you haven't done a damn thing. And that's what the book is about, is saying, this is day one. And if you want to be a leader, you want to close that gap between who you want to be and how you're behaving. You start today with nothing on the scorecard and you got to earn it again. And so long answer, because I love to tell stories, but that's really what the book talks about, how to close that gap, how to give a step-by-step guide of exactly how to do that. Well, and that's what I found interesting is that, you know, these are our big questions and heavy and tricky and can take some a lifetime to figure out, uh, but you have laid out a bit of process or process as Canadians say. <laughs> do we say is, it different? I love it. You do. It's a long O instead of a short O. And I actually like I like it better that way. <laughs> I did I didn't realize we did that. I know that we throw U's in, in words you don't. And apparently we say a boot, although I don't know what that crap's about. I did not realize we said Process different. Uh, most most Canadians, I, I do hear that. It's, one time, I was even chatting with some folks, and uh, and I, I made reference to a process, and I re- pronounced it with a long O. And they said, "Peter, you Canadian?" <laughs> and I said, "No, I just like the way Canadians say process." <laughs> you know how so, you, you know how you could spot a Canadian right now? Do tell. We're, we don't have our head down on our desk, banging it slowly uh, <laughs> as the chaos descends around us. <laughs> okay. Noted. Thank you. (laughs) So yeah, what what I wanted to to discuss is you you have a a process or process associated with getting to the bottom of some of these questions in in a step-by-step rigorous way. So so I'd love to hear what would you say are are the first steps to to zeroing in on on these values and, and associated leadership behaviors? Well, I think the first thing is to actually identify what your core leadership values are. And most people haven't. One of the things that sort of drives me as a person is, is this theory, is that when you don't know what to do in a situation, ask yourself, what would the person who I want to be do in this situation? And then do that. But what I found is that because we all went through an education system that asked us, what do you want to do when you grow up? And taught us that you should focus on the things on which you're going to be tested. Well, we never got tested on what our values were. We never got tested on who we want to be. We never got tested on what, are you, what criteria you're going to use to make big decisions. So most of us, especially high performers, actually never had time. We never sat down and thought about what are the values that want to drive us. And so what I talk about in the book is how to actually figure out what those core values are. And that's where it starts. Because values are criteria for decision making. And what real leaders do is they identify their values and they define them. Because then you use them as criteria for decision-making. Every single time that you face a challenge, you face a decision, you pivot to your values and you say, which one of these options is most consistent with my list of values? And the challenge is that often that option sucks. It it doesn't allow (laughs) you to, to look good, avoid punishments, keep the money, stay in the job. But it's always the decision that you are proudest you made five years from now. And so the first step that leaders need to do for their day one is say, these are the values that are non-negotiable for me. Here's what they mean. And then make sure that's what the book talks about, the process of actually living them every single day. Because if you don't do that, if you don't use your values as criteria for decision-making, the question that I love to challenge people with is, what criteria have you been using to make decisions every day for your whole life so far? (laughs) And what I realize is, is for most of us, the number one criteria we use to make decisions is what will avoid the most consequences right now. Mm. And that, that is not how leaders make decisions. And that's why that's where you start. And I talk about how in the book, but mostly it comes down to self-reflection, not on what you think, which is how most people think about self-reflection. We get into our head, but self-reflection on how you have behaved because your values are indicated by how you behave, not by how you talk. And in the book, I talk about how to, how to use a reflective exercise that looks not at, oh, what, what are my values? Let me think about it. But it looks directly at what have I done in my life? Because that's a better source for figuring out what your values are. Well, that's so intriguing, that notion in terms of 
in the absence of of clear values, you know, that is the default. You know, what will avoid the most unpleasant consequences for me right now? And you know, that's really not at all inspiring. You know, no. it, it's like uh, in terms of just you know selfishness and 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 short sightedness. And but at the same time, it, a lot of times, you know, that answer is an okay one in terms of, well, not lying about what I, how I just screwed up would avoid the most consequences because if I lied about it, then I'd really be <laughs> up a creek. In a way, I think that shorthand default gets you to some, some decent decisions somewhat often, but, but it sure doesn't um, you know, make your chest rise in pride as to the, the, the person that you're being. So I'm intrigued then. Let's hear it. Well, first, when you say values, I'd love to get your take on there's there's many you could choose from, perhaps an infinite amount in terms of ways you could articulate it. So I'd love for you to to first give a few examples of here are, you know, four different values and what they mean. Sure. Well, in the book, I actually focus on six. The idea is that each individual, you have to identify your own, and then there's a process to embed them into your life. But in order to demonstrate the process, I, I said, here are six that here on day one, when you put the book down, this is what you could actually do right away. And they are impact, courage, growth, empowerment, class, and self-respect. Those six values. Now, impact is a commitment to creating moments that cause people to feel as if they are better off for having interacted with you. And courage is a commitment to taking action when there is the possibility of loss which gets educated out of us as we grow older, right? Uh, we go through the education system that teaches us, you're going to get evaluated not on how good you are right now, but on how few mistakes you made along the way. Because every time you make one along the way, we take points away. And even if at the end you're the most talented, hey, if you lost the most points, it doesn't reflect. Uh, yeah, we, we talk about growth, which is a commitment to increasing the capacity to add value. Leaders add value to other people's lives. That's ultimately your goal. Now, in the process, you add value to your own. Anytime you get better at the ability to add value, you are embodying the value of growth. And that means anytime that you're a catalyst for learning, you effectively have helped people grow. One of the big ways you can help people grow is to change how you ask questions. Or sorry, change how you... That's one of the big talents, sorry, is to learn how to effectively ask questions. Leaders, I think we get confused. And a lot of people walk away from the idea of leadership because they think they don't have all the answers. And one thing I really want to tell people is that leaders do not have more answers necessarily than other people, but they do ask tremendous questions. They're better at that, and they ask a particular kind of question. The best leaders I know, and if you're listening, think about trying to get better at this. Asking questions where the person being asked learns more than the person doing the asking. Now, usually we think, okay, if I'm asking questions, it's because I want to gather information. But what leaders do is they ask these powerful questions that help people understand things about themselves they didn't know. I, I give a bunch of examples in the book, but the one I, I really like is, why do you matter? Now, that's a deep-ass question, but most of the people I ask 95% of them cannot give me an answer to that question, or they're making one up on the spot. And ultimately, the reason I ask it isn't to get an answer necessarily, but to make people realize they don't have one. No one's ever asked them before. And your kids don't have one either. If they're under the age of five, go ahead, ask your kids that question. They will give you an amazing answer. But once we send them to school, they stop believing that why they matter is up to them and it's supposed to be evaluated by somebody else. And because all of us spent 20 of the most formative years in our lives in that system, we don't unlearn that lesson. We spend the rest of our lives waiting for someone else to evaluate how much we matter. And so ultimately, becoming a great leader, I think, is finding out a way to ask those questions where the person who's being asked learns more than you do. Empowerment is a commitment to helping other people reach their goals. All right, it, It's a, uh, a commitment to acting as a catalyst for the success of others. And ultimately, what that means is unlearning this, comp this competitive process that we also learn through school, this idea that we're 
there's a finite amount out there. All right. We live in this economy of scarcity. And if you don't get the jobs, if you don't get the money, somebody else will. So ultimately, you have to outperform other people. And what that makes us do is that we stop seeing empowering other people as a fundamentally good thing in our lives. And what we do is we think helping other people, what we're doing is we're holding ourselves back, particularly in the job world. And so one of the things when I get invited to have the opportunity to speak to business schools, because business students are a special breed, ultimately they're being taught this idea of compete, 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 be the top, have have the best resume, that's what's going to help you. And so one of the things I tell, if you want to be great at your job, and and if you're in one of these positions where you actually create a culture at a job, a manager or, or an executive, don't try to outperform other people. Because if you can outperform 90% of the people on the planet, great, you know, or in your organization, great, you'll make six figures. But if you could become the type of person where everyone who works with you outperforms everyone who doesn't work with you, then you're indispensable. And you want to be great at your job, be indispensable. Don't necessarily be someone who's at the top, be indispensable. When you create a career where every day you could identify something you did to make someone else move closer to a goal. What you're doing is you're creating a career where when other people get promoted, you get promoted too, because people remember who made them better at their job. Class is a commitment to treating people in situations better than they deserve to be treated. And self-respect is a commitment to recognizing you cannot add value to other people's lives until you've added enough value to your own. When you are empty, you have nothing to give. That is the six that I use as examples within the book. And each one comes with an accompanying question to make sure that you can, you can give yourself evidence you've lived it. But the idea of the day one process is you get to figure out your values and you could figure out what they mean. And then you can convert into your own things that drive you every single day. And that really is the, the key to what you know, the book, my work, and, and my company is trying to do is give people this direct guideline every day of how to live like the person they want to be through their work. Not necessarily on top of it. You can answer all these questions and live these values through the work that you do every single day. And if you don't know what the values are, you don't know how to define them, the last like 40 pages of the book is basically a list of, of 40 of the most common values I've, I've been given over the years and sample definitions for them, as long with the questions you can use if these are the ones that are important to you. Well, th- th- this is intriguing. And, and so maybe it no need to to offer all 40 definitions but uh, of those 40 could you could you share a few more and because i have a feeling as as folks listen some folks would be like yes you know like 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 there's uh, by by hearing a, a little bit of a laundry list some of them will will naturally have more of a resonance uh, than others so i think that could be valuable if you could maybe just rattle off a few more yeah sure not a uh, adventure a commitment to seeking out new or exciting experiences accountability is a commitment to acknowledging responsibility for the outcomes of your actions, Uh, perseverance, a commitment to uh, overcoming obstacles and enduring discomfort. Rationality is a commitment to making decisions based on logic and reason. Mastery, a commitment to seeking continuous improvement. Mindfulness, a commitment to being conscious, aware, and engaged in in any given moment. And you'll notice that they all start with a commitment to. Mm -hmm. And we use a lot of these words. Integrity is a big one, right? Uh, Integrity or honesty or compassion. We throw these words around and we use them to evaluate our behavior and to judge other people. But we honestly very rarely identify what those words actually mean. And what I often will tell people is to, to envision a hypothetical where someone follows you around for 30 days out of your life. And at the end of those 30 days, and you weren't aware of this, I ask that person, what are the three values that this person puts out into the world every day? What are the three values this person uses whenever they have to make a difficult decision? What would they be? And it's always integrity, honesty, generosity, kindness. But if you ask people to say, all right, finish this sentence. Integrity is a commitment to what? We have been using these words to judge ourselves and our organizations and other people and we have never actually identified what they mean. The problem is, if you haven't identified what one of your values means, turn it into a finish line so that you can actually recognize when you cross it, you can't make it a target, you can't strategize on how to get there, and most of the moments where you actually live up to it will be completely ignored and uncelebrated. So in order to actually live our values, 
Yeah, because look, it's the celebrations in our lives that drive us forward, that give us momentum. And setting goals is planning celebrations. And so when we don't identify what our values actually are, we deny ourselves the opportunity to celebrate the moments when we are the person that we want to be. And some days, that's the only thing that we get to celebrate, right? Because some days the world blows up in our face. And that's why I think it's really important that what guides your behavior every day is a commitment to making sure that you can give yourself evidence at the end of the day that if you claim to be someone of integrity, honesty, empowerment, in my case, you know, growth, courage, empowerment, at the end of the day, you have to be able to give a specific example of when you were that. Because if when I ask you, okay, you're someone of integrity, give me three examples of integrity this week. Well, hold on. It depends on how you define it. No, it depends on how you define it. But ultimately, if you can only give me two or three examples of you living your values in a given week, then leadership isn't a practice. It's a hobby. And, and really what I want to talk to people about is moving leadership from a hobby to a practice. Because I have six questions that drive my behavior every single day. And with a, a, with a laptop and a phone, I can answer those six questions tied to my values in less time than it takes me to empty my email inbox. But for most of my life, I prioritized emptying my email inbox ahead of being the man I want to be every day. And I, what I found is that most people, even very successful people, that is what they're doing with their lives. They are sticking what they have to do every day ahead of who they want to be. And the two don't have to be separate, but you can make sure that you're being the person you want to be as you finish the things that you have to do every day. Because when you don't, eventually you don't get to answer the question, why do I matter? Because you don't have any evidence. And you do, but if you don't give yourself evidence, that impacts how you feel about yourself and how you treat others. Yeah, I dig it. And I think it's it's so... It's so true. And, and I, I remember one of my, my happiest thoughts, I think Einstein has the happiest thought, but I recall I was right in front of my, my childhood home. I was like 18 years old, going to graduate high school pretty soon. And I was just sort of chilling in, in my car, a 1989 Chevrolet celebrity. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I, was li- I was licking some ice cream and just thinking, why do I feel so amazing right now? <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then I was like, and, and why do other times do I feel really la- just yucky? <laughs> Even though the circumstances around me are, are somewhat similar in terms of family and friends and school and whatever. And then I sort of came up with to the, the, the same kind of conclusion, like, oh, kind of like your baseline level of satisfaction with life and yourself is, is determined by the extent to which you are, are living in accordance with your values. And I thought I was really a brilliant guy for figuring that out, but then I realized that, no, that's very well kind of established in sort of the human condition and philosophers throughout the, the millennia. But, but, but it was, it was cool to, to arrive at and say, no, yes, this is true. And I, um, and I buy it and I can kind of see how in the last few weeks I've been on sort of a hot streak. Hey, how about I do that more deliberately, you know, rather than just get lucky. So I, I'm right with you. That it is powerful and well worth prioritizing, and I like how you've you've put it there in terms of getting systematic about making it a practice and say, well, did I do that this, you know, today and this week? And so, but I want to kind of you know rewind a little bit to the starting line in terms of you know what is the the step by step process by which you reflect upon your experiences and come out with your true values on the other side. Well, I think it's one of those questions I, I gave an example of a little bit earlier, a little earlier, one of those questions that people learn something when you ask them. And for me, it's the edge of the bed advice. And the edge of the bed advice happened on that train trip. Uh, it came out of, you know, when I started speaking to people after that young girl, her name was Allison, sort of made me realize that I wasn't living the life I wanted. And the edge of the bed advice says this, I started to ask people on the train, and I learned a lot. If it was the last night your son or daughter was living in your house, And you're walking by their room and they call you in and you sit on the edge of the bed and they say, mom, dad, what do I need to know? What do I need to know to be happy and healthy and successful in this world? What insights have most contributed to your happiness? Give me 30 of them. Bring them back tomorrow. (laughs) You know, when you wake up and see, because what happens is if you ask people for one piece of advice, they think it has to be some sort of Dalai Lama-esque Confucius says massive insight. You give people 30 and they actually start to realize, man, I know a lot and I've never thought about that phrase, the things that have most contributed to my happiness. 
And so what it does is you start to reflect as you go through these 30, what do I know to be true about fill in that blank? What do I know to be true about love? What do I know to be true about business? What do I know to be true about happiness, sadness, friendship? And when you think about that, what do I know to be true? And you start to write down these 30 pieces of edge of the bed advice. What they do is they emerge from your wisdom. Now, your wisdom is, comes from experience. All right, wisdom, you can't just sit and come up with wisdom. You earn wisdom through what you do, what you're successful at, what you fail at, what makes you happy, sad, other people happy and sad. So as you write down these 30 pieces of advice, what you're ultimately doing is reflecting on what you have done and writing down what you learned from it, which means those 30 pieces of advice are born from your lived experience, not from some idealized version of what you think sounds good about your life. This is actually what you did. Now, The next step, I actually can't give away, not because I want people to run out and buy the book, because if you know what the next step is, it influences how you create the list, if that makes some sense, because you need to do step one first in order to and not know what the next step is, because otherwise it starts to you don't get an honest assessment of what your values are. The reason I say it is that you need to surface your values is what my work has taught me. You can't just ask someone. You actually have to put them through a reflective process on their experiences that help them surface it. And I, and I don't want that to be a cop-out. It's one of the challenges of trying to give that practical advice through podcasts or on the radio is that you can't actually surface your values if you know step two when you do step one. Uh, but that's where you start. And, and honestly, my friends, if you're listening, just do that assignment. Do it for yourself. Sit down over the next two weeks and think that question, what do I know to be true about? If you have kids, give it to them. If you are a manager, get the people in your office to do it. Bring them in or or take them and then put together a list of your favorites. Take the names off them, hand it out anonymously, because what you're doing is you're saying to people, this is the brilliance of the people who surround you. Because if you come up with 30, there'll be at least three on your list that you are proud of, that you say, man, I want to tweet that because that's really smart. And so do that assignment. That starts to get you thinking about what has made you happiest, what has made you wisest, and you can start to, to pull from there. But in terms of actually identifying the, the values, it, it's step two. But that's where you start. Your values come from what you've done, not from what you say. Yeah, that's intriguing. And uh, the wheels are, wheels are spinning. I guess turning has a more positive connotation. So they're turning as opposed to spinning. So you say, what do I know to be true about? And, and so you, you had a few things there in terms of like love, happiness. Uh, so is it just sort of like any, any kind of big piece of, of life, like money, business, fitness, relationships, friendship? Is, is it kind of like, is that how you think about how you fill in the blank there is just sort of the big buckets of, of stuff? Yeah, really, it comes down to the idea that Some people get stuck. They're like, I don't even know where to begin. So you can sit back and just reflect on your wisdom. And some people can come up with 30 like that. What I discovered, however, is that people really sometimes need a little bit of, okay, well, where do I start? And ultimately, that really helps. As you sort of write down a list of things that are obviously a challenge that someone's going to face. Love, family, friendship, work. Uh, What do I know to be true about failure or stress or fear? And ultimately, that little phrase that can really get you thinking about it. Neither a borrower nor a lender be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm just thinking about all of the, uh, that, that whole speech. Is it Polonius and Laertes? Uh, he really goes on. But uh, I guess that's helpful for, for those Shakespearean folk. Uh, very cool. Uh, well, so that's you awesome. Know, Drew. You know, what, you know what's funny, my friend? Let's hear it. You mentioned that. One of my, because I put together my list there. Uh-huh. One, of, one of them is... Uh, uh, number what was it number 14 i would have told my kids there are more rosalines out there than juliet's oh <laughs> there are more people th- there are more things that you think you desperately want and you can't live without them and then all of a sudden uh, you realize that you didn't really want them that there was something else out there for you and that's something wise to keep in mind when you lose something you thought you really wanted is that that was probably a rosaline not a juliet and and the next piece of advice is that you know both romeo and juliet end up dead at the end of that story Love does not conquer all, but love has an incredible winning percentage. Love is LeBron James, and you should adjust your ex- you should adjust your expectations accordingly. Oh, that's fine. 
Well, well, Drew, tell me, lots of good stuff here. Is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Mostly, folks, if we can start to recognize that we get educated out of leadership by using these big giants as our examples, and for those of you out there who are parents, you can start to shift this. We can start to widen the definition of leadership. Most of the leadership on the planet is coming from people who don't see themselves as leaders because we were taught to think of leaders as these giants. And that divided our, that put a wedge between our identity and what leadership actually was. When you start to talk about leaders to your kids, to your coworkers, let's start to realize that all of our biggest leadership heroes should be people that you know personally because you get to see how they make decisions. Every single day, when we look at famous people, when we look at the RFKs and the Martin Luther Kings, I'm not trying to diminish that. What I am saying, however, is that we only see the outcomes of their decisions. We don't see how they made them. And most of the leadership heroes you, you know should be people that you've seen how they make decisions. I do not argue that everyone should be a CEO or everyone has the capacity to be a senior manager, but there is a form of leadership that we, to which we all can and should aspire. We're ignoring people who consistently behave in ways that make their lives and the lives of people around them better. And if we can recognize these moments of compassion and generosity and kindness, and we recognize them as leadership, what we're doing is we're doing a better job recognizing the leadership that's being ignored. Leadership recognized is leadership created. So that's one thing I want to say is that we're teaching kids to not see themselves as leaders because they're not yet in charge. And I think we can start to change that if we start to give different examples of what leaders actually are. You know, I, I dig that a lot. And, and, and there's, there's one more thing I got to get before we hear your favorite things. And that is, when you talk about, you know, those moments of, of kindness or compassion or, or, and whatnot, and how, you know, often following your values sucks, <laughs> you know, in terms of like, it's a, a, unpleasant or uncomfortable in terms of the consequences. Do you have any pro tips for when you're in the, in the thick of it and either you, you just don't feel like it, or it's like, oh, this is going to hurt. Uh, any pro tips for, for following through and, and being consistent with those values when you sure don't want to? Uh, one, imagine yourself explaining the decision to a group of people you respect five years from now. Ooh. Imagine that every single decision you make in your life, five years from that day, you have to stand up and in front of a group of people that you love and respect, you have to explain the decision that you made. Uh, that when you when you do that, a lot of the noise surrounding our decision falls away. When you don't know what to do, what would the person I want to be do, and then do that. Uh, second, you got to practice. You have to practice, and yeah, that's part of what the book is about: is how do you create this habit of making decisions based on your values? That's really really important. Is that you have to do it regularly because what it does is it makes you so aware of the fact that you are capable of handling the consequences. So much of how you handle those extra tough days are determined by the behaviors that you engage in on the days that aren't tough. And we, we need to prove to ourselves that we have courage and resilience. I can make tough decisions, not because I am a better person than other people, but because I made it a habit to make decisions consistent with my values, which meant a lot of times bad crap happened. But what you become aware of is that you can make it through bad crap. And only when you become confident in your ability to do that are you more willing to take those chances? Your brain's job is to keep you from harm. And when you can prove to your brain that you can get over those consequences, it will be more likely to say, okay, then let's do it. But if you don't practice, and if you don't get used to it, then you're always going to shy away from the consequences because you haven't yet proven to yourself that you can handle them. Awesome. Thank you. Well, now can you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? <laughs> I should tell so many stories, I know. Uh, here's a quick one from the book, though, about the word favorite. Two World War II veterans told me you should never use the word favorite, best, or greatest because it diminishes everything else in your life that isn't the best. They said, draw what they call the great line. And all you ask yourself is not, where does that rank in time in terms of all the things in my life? Best meal, favorite quote, greatest sunset. Just say to yourself, that's above the great line. Because there's an unlimited amount of things that can go above the great line. There is only one greatest. And he said to me, Drew, greatest is the enemy of great. Because when we focus on the greatest, we diminish all the great. So 
I will probably give you more than one answer for these favorites. Uh, I'll try to limit it to two. When it comes to my favorite, you asked for quote, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, two. Uh, the last thing my girlfriend ever wrote to me was, I want to build a better life for myself and a better self for my life. Uh, and she passed away just a couple of days later. And, and that, uh, it's so odd when the greatest summation of what you try to teach in the world is is summarized by somebody else. I want to build a better life for myself and a better self for my life. And the other one is one that she and I shared. And I actually have, well, actually I have hers tattooed on my arm and I have this one tattooed on my leg. Uh, it's from Hamilton by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Look around, look around at how lucky we are to be alive right now. Awesome. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Uh, that's going to be Jim Coos's, uh and, Larry, and Barry Posner's work uh, in the book, The Leadership Challenge, specifically around personal value clarity. Because what they found was they identified five exemplary practices of leaders, and, and I highly recommend the book. But what they, they really showed is that individuals who are clear on their personal values have higher levels of commitment, pride, and happiness at work. And that's much more correlated than clarity on organizational values. If you want to be happier at work, proud of the job that you do, and a better all overall work experience, get personal value clarity. And, and the book, The Leadership Challenge, talks about how those things are linked. Thank you. And while we're at it, how about a favorite book? Oh, gosh. Uh, the Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. Also, Silos, Politics, and Turf Wars. Uh, Good to Great is the best business book. Uh, of all time. And hey, there's one I'll recommend to everybody, which is why we sleep, the power of sleep and dreams. You will get eight hours of sleep a night when you read that book. The number one resource that will make us better that we're ignoring is sleep. And we all know it. But when you read this book, you realize you're not going to deny it anymore. It's scary for individuals who, who get four hours of sleep a night. It's funny. Uh, people, when I tell people, oh, what do you do? I have a company called How to Be Awesome at Your Job and a podcast. They're like, oh, so yeah, what's your top tip? And it's like, well, it's hard to condense over 300 interviews into a top tip for you. But since you've asked, it'll, it's sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I'm right with you there. And how about a favorite tool? Tool? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you like, mean tool? Like you're a tool, Drew. <laughs> no, that's no, going to be like, no, like, I, like, I love a hammer, a good quality hammer. Actually, like those little multi-tools. Or did you mean favorite tool to use for success in life? Well, yeah, something that helps you be awesome at your job. Exercise. The, the endorphins, your body is the greatest tool. And, and I used to be 300 pounds and I lost 100 pounds. And I, I had a good job and liked what I did before that. But I'm a thousand times better when I realize that the greatest tool you were ever given is your body. And look, do not hate your body, but do not lie to yourself when it's unhealthy. And I lied to myself for a lot of years that my body was unhealthy. The greatest tool that I have uh, is my body. It's the one that we all have. So exercise is a pro- profoundly good tool. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect you to resonate with folks? Two things. Uh, when you don't know what to do in a situation, ask yourself, what would the person I want to be do? And do that. And three words. These have saved my career. Elevate, don't escalate. When you're getting trolled, when you get an email that pisses you off, uh, three words. Elevate, don't escalate. Leaders elevate situations. They never escalate them. Elevate means trying to succeed. And escalate means trying to win. And those three words over and over again, elevate, don't escalate, elevate, don't escalate. I repeat them on a loop and it's gotten me out of some trouble because we're the only creatures on the planet with a gap between stimulus and response. And your career and your relationships and your life is in large part determined by how you use the gift of that gap. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? DrewDudley.com, D-R-E-W-D-U-D-L-E-Y.com. You will notice that all of the words on that webpage have U's in them, though. Humor has a U, ladies and gentlemen. Come on, stop all that. I don't know why you Americans are so exclusionary sometimes. Embrace the U. Embrace the U. Color me uh, embracing. I <laughs> uh, couldn't resist. Yeah. That's not really cool there, eh? Don't be doing that. I don't feel bad. Ed, do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? I do. Number one, by the end of today, Make sure you have an answer to this question. What have I done today to recognize someone else's leadership? That question, you answer for 30 days, you journal how you answer it, your job's going to get better, your relationships will get better, your career will get better, and your life will get better. Leadership recognized is leadership created. And one of the best things we can do to make our lives better and our jobs better 
is to start to recognize all those moments of kindness and compassion. That the person at the coffee shop who knows your name and smiles at you every day, the custodian at your workplace that keeps the place spotless every single night, the receptionist who thinks she's just a receptionist, all of those people make your life, your job better. Take a moment and recognize that as leadership because we continually do the things that make us feel good. And when somebody tells you that when you do this, it's having an impact, you're going to do it more often. So be the catalyst for making that happen. What have you done today to recognize someone else's leadership? Awesome. Drew, this has been a ton of fun. I wish you all the best of luck with, with day one leadership and, and all you're up to. Oh, my friend, thank you so much. It's been a blast. I really appreciated Drew's wisdom there, and I really appreciate our sponsors. Check them out. I was so struck by what Drew had to say regarding the, the default means by which we make decisions without a clear-cut values that are defined that you're running with. And that is what will avoid the most consequences for me right now. And, and it just, oh, it's a little spooky for me because, I mean, you can just imagine a whole life lived that way. And it's, it's sort of profoundly unsatisfying as compared to a life that is lived out with uh, those six example values that he had or, or really just sort of anything that's that's somewhat noble <laughs> or, or helpful or good in the world in terms of what that means uh, over a lifetime of having made decisions by that default eh, what's going to avoid the most consequences for me right now or by purposeful values established and, and geez, what a pathway that that could form and a difference that makes compounded over a life and a career. It, huge and worthy of thinking in terms of a, a call to action, a kick in the butt to do some, do some thought and establish what those are for you. So I hope you dug that and more. And if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to islands we've referenced, you'll find it over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F347. And if you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. If you do so, you'll hear from our next guest. It's Diana Kander. She's talking about curiosity, how it makes all the difference, and how to harness it to get some good innovation, improvement, and, and wonderful things going on in your career. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.